In our culture today, marriage and the family certainly is under attack. Uh, there have been many, uh, many attacks against the traditional biblical view of marriage. And this morning, I think what we'll see from the text from Scripture is that uh, God has designed and ordained a specific, uh, a specific way for marriage to exist, and that being between a husband and a wife. God has, uh, has clearly articulated in His Word His divine plan for marriage. Uh, to benefit and to flourish humanity, to benefit and to flourish a, a husband and a wife. And so this morning, as we look at this text, the title that I've given to the sermon is Marriage, a Radically Countercultural View. Because more and more today, we're seeing that the biblical understanding and biblical worldview, especially in dealing with marriage and the family, is very countercultural. It is completely opposite of what the culture espouses and believes and lives out before the world. And so this morning, as we look at this text, I want us to see that this is what I want us to walk away understanding and seeing. And I hope we do. I want us to see that when our marriages take their cue from Christ and the church, they will be a healthy they will be healthy and they will display the gospel to the world. When our marriages take their cue from Christ and the church, they will be healthy and display the gospel to the world. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, would you speak to our hearts and minds? Lord, your word has something to say to each one of us this morning. It, it doesn't matter regarding our marital status or our single. Your word speaks to us because it teaches us of Christ and his relationship to, to us as the church, your body, your bride. And so, Father, open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Open our minds to comprehend the truth of your word, our hearts to love the truth of your word and give us endurance and strength, Lord, to live out the truth of your word, even in the midst of a culture that is increasingly in opposition to the truth of your word, especially when it comes to marriage. So now, Lord. Would you. Would you speak to us? And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by reading in verse 22 of chapter 5. So if you found your place, I want to invite you to follow along with me as I read. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should excuse me, submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is certainly a hot button issue in our day. But before we can really talk about and understand this radical, this radical countercultural call that this passage lays forth, I think we must see the mystery revealed that he's speaking about first. Paul aims to teach us about marriage by laying the foundation, which is of primary importance. And that foundation is first, it points us to see the relationship between Christ and the church. That is to say that marriage is to display, is to be a display of God's good design for creaturely flourishing. But the marriage relationship is a pointer for all people, both for single and for married, to the greater eternal reality of God's covenant relationship with His people by Christ our Savior. And it is this covenant relationship that is displayed through Christ and the church. And so this morning, first, I want us to see that marriage is a living picture of the relationship between Christ and His bride and displays the gospel for all to see. Marriage is a living picture of the relationship between Christ and His bride and displays the gospel for all to see. Paul's metaphor of marriage is to highlight the primary reality of Christ's union with the church. And to understand what he's saying here, we first need to begin by looking at the end of the text and then working our way backwards through the rest of the text this morning. And so we begin by looking at verses 31 and 32. I asked Dr. David to read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, because it included this quote from verse 31 in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 31 and 32 say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The first way that we see marriage offers the world a living picture of the gospel is through the oneness of flesh. It's through unity. And this is shown in verses 31 and 32. This oneness of flesh, this unity, it actually speaks of the intimate act of consummation between Adam and Eve, as he quotes it from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's this consummation, this intimacy between husband and wife. And God has expressly designed the marriage relationship to be the only place of knowing another person intimately. And so from the beginning, we could, begin, we could, we could state that this, this speaks against promiscuity. This speaks against... Uh, against adultery, this speaks against homosexuality, this speaks against any other perverse form that would threaten the unity, the intimacy, the oneness of marriage. And as the husband and wife know one another intimately, they form a bond. And that bond, it's physical, it's emotional, 
and it's spiritual, all three. They're no longer two, but they become one unified flesh. And so Paul uses this mixed metaphor of marriage and body. And in doing so, he implies that when the husband and the wife become one, that they become one body, just as the church becomes the body of Christ. And so when the husband loves his wife, he actually is loving himself. And when the wife loves her husband, she's actually loving herself. Paul says there in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery that's profound, it is the mystery that's revealed. It was the once hidden plan of God now revealed in Christ's redemption, salvation, and sanctification of his bride, the church. And so Christian marriage then is to model, it is to reveal this profound mystery of Christ and his faithfully loving, his responsive bride, the church, who submits under his headship and follows his lead and engages in God's mission in the world. And so this is what it means to be a unified people in Christ advancing God's mission in the world. God has designed the oneness of marriage between a man and a woman to point to the greater reality of the church's unity with Christ. Now, not in some perverse way, but in the fact that we become new creations and we are in Christ and we are the body and Christ is the head. In fact, this is the kind of language that Paul uses to illustrate this truth throughout Ephesians. Look back at chapter 1, verse 23, and see what he says. 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head. That's Christ. Gave Christ as head over all things to the church. And then we see which is his what? His body, right? The church is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. We turn to chapter 4 and look in verse 12. We see that after this, after this uh, discussion on the unity of the church... Paul goes in verse 12 and says, here's the reason they gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers. It is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the what? The body of Christ. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. From whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, here's the point. As the body of Christ and as the bride of Christ, the church submits to Christ's headship. We follow Christ's leadership. Now, every one of us here this morning, we've already covered this in Ephesians, right? We together make up the church. The church is not this building. It's not this campus. It's all of us gathered together, believers, united in faith and in one God, one faith, one Lord, one Jesus, one baptism, and so on and so forth from chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 8. So this is the church gathered together as one body under the headship of Christ, following his leadership, and, and we, are, we are going out into the world, displaying the gospel for all people to see. Therefore, every member of the body of Christ is significant and has gifts that are to be employed in the body of Christ to make the bride effective 
in submitting and following Christ. So if you thought your role or responsibility in the church was insignificant, believer, know that as a member of this body united together with other believers, it is of great importance that God has gifted you and desires that you would use your gifts and wants to use your gifts employed in serving one another and serving the kingdom. But the second way we see that marriage offers the world a living picture of the gospel is through headship and submission. We see this in verse 23, the second part. The first part reads, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Christ is the head of the church, meaning Christ has authority over the church, meaning that Christ leads his bride. He's the good shepherd, meaning that Christ's leadership is not tyrannical. It's not domineering. It's not dictatorial. Instead, Christ's leadership is gracious, right? Not counting our faults against us. It's entreating. Think about Hebrews 12 too. This, this thought captivated my mind just in reading through and preparing this text. Who for the Think about this as a husband, Christ, giving his life for the bride, Hebrews 12.2 says, who for the joy said before him, endured the cross. In other words, he suffered in our place. His leadership is restful. Matthew 11.28, Jesus says to his disciples, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Right? There's this invitation to rest in, in Christ's husbandry for the church. See, it looks out, he looks out for the good of the body. This is the kind of leadership, headship, that Christ offers the body, his bride. He does what's best for the church. He is himself its savior. To this point, then, the church walks in submission to Christ's lead. Church, we we live spirit-filled lives, as we saw last week in this address in verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, but but, but be filled with the Spirit, right? We live spirit-filled lives, following Him into the world, carrying out His mission. And it's the church's goal to be united with Christ and in Christ, following as He leads. So that we serve His kingdom. So that we serve one another with the gifts that he's so richly given us. We employ these gifts for the good of the body, for the spread of the gospel, and for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. I want to say something else about headship and submission that's important. This isn't original with me. Headship and submission were not created by the fall. They existed before Adam and Eve's fall in sin. Headship and submission were actually ruined by the fall. And Paul's point is that though headship and submission have been twisted and ravaged by sin, they've been redeemed by Christ. 
And so what Paul is doing here is he's laying out a biblical model for Christian husbands and Christian wives to live in a God-glorifying way to exemplify this relationship between Christ and the church. And so we must put out of our minds this negative, false understanding of what headship and submission looks like as, as promoted by the world and understand what God's Word has to say and teach us about this headship and submission. So this leads to the third way that marriage offers the world a living picture of the gospel, and that's through sacrifice. In the second part of verse 25 through verse 27, we see this. Verse 25b, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? We see in verse 23, the last phrase, and is himself its savior. Speaking of the church, Christ is the savior of the church. But we see here in verse 25, the last part of verse 25, that he gave himself up for her. He loved the church. This verb loved and this verb gave speaks of the work that Christ has done both in his incarnation and his crucifixion. Even in his resurrection, his exaltation. This speaks to the work of Christ. Christ's love for the church offers the husband then an incredible display of selfless service and sacrificial love. If you think about it, Christ loved the church so much that he died for her good. So we see in his coming, in his death, in his resurrection, even in his exaltation, that Christ is one who is giving of himself. He is giving, he is giving, he is giving, he is servant-hearted, he is giving. Even in his exaltation, what does he give? He gives his spirit to indwell his people. His love and his giving of himself was displayed through every activity for the redemption of his bride, the church. Christ died to redeem the church, to purchase her. In all her filthy rags, in all her waywardness, as a people of God, Christ died to redeem the church. This points us to see the work of of sanctification. It says in verse 26, here's the reason, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He did this in order to set her apart, to set her apart in permanent relationship to himself, just as in marriage. And so in Judaism, the bride would take a prenuptial bath to make herself ready for the wedding night. And so here is the picture of the church and what Christ is doing. He is cleansing the bride through washing of water with the purifying word of the gospel. He's also done this to make her radiant and pure. We see this in verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Look at the description. You know it, it's familiar, but look at it again. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, spotless, perfect. We can understand this by thinking about our own wedding tradition in America. On the wedding day, traditionally, the bride wears a white dress with a train that follows behind and a veil that's over her head. And all of this to signify her purity. And at the ceremony, everyone, everyone takes their place. 
they're sitting in the chapel, they're sitting in the, in the, in the church building, and they're waiting for the bride to enter. And the doors swing open, and in steps the bride in all her radiance, right? Dressed without blemish, nothing out of place, no wrinkles on this dress, no stains in her appearance. And the groom stands, setting his gaze with delight on his bride in all her radiance because she is dressed like a queen. And never before has he set his gaze on such a beautiful bride as his own. This is the picture that Paul is giving us of the church in preparation for the wedding feast with Christ and the marriage ceremony with Christ in Revelation Paul speaks here, we see it in Revelation. And this is the loving work of Christ now with his bride. We could probably draw some parallels between the preparation for that one time beautiful event, right? And the progressive sanctification of the church. But here's Christ's work with his bride now. For we don't yet look like this portrait of beauty. We're still sinful. We're still clothed in rags we still have blemishes and spots and wrinkles but there's coming a day when at the end time when Christ will draw us unto himself and will present us to himself in beauty and splendor and in perfection and the church is now though in process we are in process and Christ is laboring among us and in us To present us to himself in spotless radiance. He's gently calling us to himself to to submit our souls to him. And to find rest for our weariness. So we see the, the church is called in this way. To live in submission to Christ. And the church living in submission to Christ is a model for every marriage Just as the gospel-centered marriage, living in accordance with God's design, is a model for every believer to live in unity as one body. And so we see that marriage is a living picture of the relationship between Christ and His bride and displays the gospel for all to see. Secondly, this morning, I want you to note The husband's radical call in Christian marriage is unceasing, self-sacrificing love for the joy of his wife, himself, and the glory of God. In verse 23, we've looked at this briefly. The first part, though, says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. There is a direct parallel that Paul is making here between the husband's responsibility and role in this marital relationship and Christ with the church, and that is this role of headship. But what is headship? In one word, we could say that headship is leadership. It's leadership. And headship within the marriage, is it involves the husband taking the initiative and leading, being the one who is leading his wife, leading his family as they walk through life. I think it's helpful, though, at this point to pause and just note that 
no husband is perfect, right? I think I heard my wife say amen. Nor is any wife perfect. No husband, no wife is perfect, and so we're all sinners. In fact, if this is our perspective and our approach to marriage, then we'll be much more patient with one another. We'll have this view and and readily admit, I am the worst of sinners, and therefore I'll be more forbearing with my spouse. John Piper, in his book, This Momentary Marriage, which I would affirm for anyone who would like to know more about what this headship and submission role in the marriage looks like to read his book, This Momentary Marriage. He defines headship in this way. He says, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take Primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Well, we've already seen how Christ's headship invites the church's submission. This is the biblical model for husbands and wives. And his leadership, the husband's leadership, is to be such that it invites, it entreats his wife to follow. Because the husband is one flesh with his wife, he needs to see, as verse 28 says, to love her is to love himself. And so we would throw caution and say that the husband, he parallels Christ in that he is is called to be head in the home and in the relationship with his wife, but he is not called to be her savior, right? Christ is her savior, Christ is the one who is sanctifying her. The husband doesn't doesn't give the wife the Holy Spirit. No, God gives. Christ gives the wife the Holy Spirit. And so so it is this work in the home of headship and submission that we'll get to in a moment that works together in really what's called mutual submission for the flourishing of of the marriage, for the flourishing of the relationship, and for a display of the gospel to the world. And so the biblical model for husbands and wives, and for the husband, this is the biblical model for husbands and wives. And so the husband, in his leadership, invites, he entreats his wife to follow. Verse 25 says that husbands, gives this command, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We understand Christ's love to be one which demonstrates at its core servant leadership. We think about Christ with the disciples in the upper room. He girds himself with a towel, right? He stoops down and he begins washing the disciples' feet. We could list several ways that we could just think of how Christ has served the church and demonstrates this model of servant leadership. So when we think about headship, we're not thinking about uh, a dictatorial type of a headship. We're not thinking about a a tyrannical type of, of leadership. We're thinking about servanthood. We're thinking about servant leadership, one who serves the bride for her good and ultimately for his joy. 
This means, as in verse 26, that husbands, it's, it's your role to be this vessel that God uses in the life of your wife to help her grow in Christ. But you are not the one who sanctifies her. God is the one who is doing the sanctifying work in her. Your actions, your devotion, your prayer life should be directed in this manner of building your wife up in Christ. You should ask questions like, even now, how do I bless my wife? How do I promote her sanctification? Husbands, you ought to be asking, how do I lead my wife to know and to love Christ more? And to be honest, some husbands need to step up and do the hard work of leading their family, of leading spiritually and leading physically. Don't be a lazy man who doesn't guard his household from the attacks of the enemy. Don't be ensnared by the sin of Adam in the garden when he stood idly by and allowed Eve to dialogue with the serpent in his presence. Be the protector. Be the leader. Exercise headship as God has designed in the marriage. Christ's servant leadership wasn't easy. He suffered and he died for his bride. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This might mean, husbands, that you've got to suffer in some ways in order to love your wives to the place of their growth and sanctification. This might mean difficult days, husband, as you lovingly entreat your wife to follow your leadership and she pushes back against it. Husbands, are you willing to suffer the the neglect of your own wants or pursuits for the good of your wife? Are you willing to humble yourself and to lead her? Are you willing to pray together, to read Scripture together, to have intimate conversation and be vulnerable with one another? I think this is truly what it means for the husband to nourish and cherish his own body, as verse 29 says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. As the husband nourishes and cares for his wife, his own body, get this, it will bring joy to his wife, in return bringing joy to himself, and it will display the gospel to the world. For what the world needs to see from the church right now are strong, gospel-centered, Christ-driven, biblically visible marriages that highlight and reflect the work of Christ with the church to a world that needs to see the hope of the gospel. This is for the glory of God. So marriage within the church ought to display for all to see the outworking of God's covenant love for His people because marriage points us to Christ and the church. Finally, this morning, I want you to see this this third point. The wife's radical call in Christian marriage is submission for the joy of her husband, herself, and the glory of God. The wife's radical call in Christian marriage is submission for the joy of her husband, herself, and the glory of God. 
Here's why it's radical. It's radical because the idea of submission is so countercultural today. But the instruction is so simply stated, isn't it? In verse 22 and verse 24, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Straightforward, verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is speaking, Paul is speaking here of the act, both the act and the will of submission. And it's done as to the Lord. So get the picture. The submission of a wife to her husband is a great act of faith whereby she is submitting actually to the Lord. Because this is God's design and His order, even in creation. And so as we see Christ exercising headship or being the head, being the leader of the body, the church, we see the church living in submission to Christ. And the church, listen church, this is important. As the church, we are to model together a unity in submission to following Christ that then is to be an example for married couples to see. And then vice versa, the married couple, husband and wife, are to model this dynamic relationship that is to be exhibited in this world between Christ and the church. 1 Peter 3.1, Peter writes this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if, here's the point, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The reality that many in our culture, perhaps even many here this morning, balk at this teaching. It helps us to understand the nature of sin in a fallen world. It is the direct result of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. And it proves the consequence of sin that we would push back against God's way and try to force our own. So this word submission, I I know that it's an incendiary word in our culture. But don't believe the lies. In our autonomous culture, we, we don't want to submit to anyone. We, we say things like, don't tell me what I can or can't do, etc. But, but listen, this perspective, it misses the whole point of God's good design and creation. Submission isn't a dirty word, at least not in the biblical sense that Scripture speaks for the role of the wife. I mentioned how John Piper defines headship. I want to give you how he defines submission because I think it's helpful He defines submission as the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Say it again. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. You know, we can list a lot of things that submission is not. Submission doesn't mean agreeing with everything your husband says. It doesn't mean checking your brain when you cross the threshold of the marriage door, right? It doesn't mean avoiding trying to help your husband change and him grow in sanctification. It doesn't mean that you can't speak to him about an area of growth in his life. It doesn't mean putting the will of your husband before Christ. 
and we can go on and on. Submission of the wife is exemplified by the church and it looks like the wife living in support of her husband, supporting his leadership, encouraging him, building him up. And just as the church submits to Christ for its benefit, so the wife is submitting to her husband and following his lead for her benefit. It isn't to say that the husband can't be wrong, right? Or the wife can't be wrong. So the wife must also be alert. Must seek not to follow her husband into sin. But as she supports and follows the lead of her husband, she will bring joy to her husband. Think about Christ. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Similarly, for the wife, she will bring joy to herself. She will display the gospel for all to see as she fleshes out what this looks like of walking in submission to her husband, following his leadership in the home, in finances, in in spiritual walk. So here's a question, wives, you can ask. How do I bless my husband? How do I, as a wife, bring deep joy and satisfaction into my husband's life? How might I build up my husband and let him know I appreciate his leadership? Am I praying for my husband and his leadership? Am I modeling submission to my husband in the way the church lives in submission to Christ? Could the church learn something from my following my husband's leadership? What could I learn from the church following Christ's leadership. This is a radically counter-cultural view to marriage. Look at verse 33. See how Paul ends with an exhortation. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands and wives, church... We are not yet perfect. We have a road of sanctification ahead of us. We have a. We have a calling together as husband and wives in unity. We have a calling together as a church in unity to make the gospel known to the world. To seek to display Christ in the midst of our communities and in in our home. And so husbands, how do you need to repent for the way that you've treated your wife? How do you need to lead forward? How do you need to lead your wife spiritually, physically, even emotionally? Wives, how do you need to support and follow your husband's lead to be that strong partner that he needs? I want to challenge you this morning. Consider these things. Weigh them in your heart. If there's sin, confess it before the Lord. Repent of it. And then have a conversation with your spouse about this about the need for leadership and following. And I want to pray for us. And you respond this morning as the Lord is working in your life. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word teaches us through Christ and his example for marriage, 
with the church. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to have healthy marriages and to display the gospel to the world. I pray for each husband and wife this morning who are struggling to walk through this biblical perspective and worldview on marriage. I pray, God, that you would, uh, that you would strengthen each home, each spouse, to live first in reverence to Christ our Savior, and then secondly, in the roles that you've called us to live in as husband and wife. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?